Good morning. It's great to see you guys. I know today is the first Sunday back for a few families that have been uh, stuck in kind of house arrest because of COVID, so that's exciting. It's an answer to prayer to see the vaccine finally rolling out and taking effect in our community and beginning to change things, hopefully back to how they were in some regards. Um, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today. That's where we'll start. We'll spend the majority of our time. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can head that way. Um, We say this almost every week, but it's true, and I think it's worth saying again today. If you don't have a physical Bible, we would love to give you one. We think that it's worth your time to actually read God's Word on paper as it was written, and uh, we would love to hand you one of those. I know Tyler mentioned the Connect table earlier uh, when he was doing the welcome, but I just want to reinforce that um, there's a Bible back there for you if you'd like one. We'd love to give you one. We bought them for that reason, and they're just sitting there collecting dust, so we'd love to put one in your hands if that's a possibility today. Uh, We are nearly done with this sermon series. We're getting ready to launch into the book of Exodus in just a couple of weeks. And it's been six weeks since we initially set our goal that we wanted to take the principles of this new vision and apply them personally, not just talk about what they mean to us as a corporate church, as kind of policy, if you will, which is important and is, you know, we're doing that too, but to go a little bit deeper than that and maybe more personal. And try to talk about how if these things are important to us, if they are uh, principles that we're willing to embrace corporately, then they're probably worth embracing individually as well. And so we've tried to do that. Uh, we spent the, the first three weeks in the internal principles of our vision, belonging to Jesus and each other, uh, becoming like Christ in thought and deed, beholding Jesus high and lifted up. And then last week we moved out a ring from those internal facing principles of ministry to three external facing principles of ministry. We started with sharing. That's what we discussed last week. How do we share the gospel? What is the gospel that we share? We discussed how Christians have a tendency maybe to overcomplicate this a little bit, to turn it into more of a formula or a presentation instead of simply telling our stories. We looked at the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4 as a great example of how we can simply explain what Jesus has done in our lives, tell other people how we encountered him, and then try to bring them back to him so that they can meet him personally. Today we're going to move into the second external facing principle. We're going to talk about showing mercy. How do we show mercy? And we're going to talk about what mercy is according to the Bible. When we show it to the world, what is the God's thought behind that? Because God is typically relatively logical, even when he's unpredictable. There's kind of a system in play of why he wants us to do the things that we do. And just like last week, even though we've moved out by one ring, you can see the diagram behind me, uh, it's important that you remember that this principle is still deeply rooted in the central principle. It's all about Jesus. Uh, And also, each of these external facing principles, even though they move out by one ring, it's just a way to visualize and think about it, they're still outcomes. These things don't work if it's not all about Jesus at the center. And so today, the fifth outcome of Jesus being at the center, we'll say, if it's all about Jesus, then we show mercy to our neighbors. That's where we're going to go today together. So what is mercy? I think the easiest way to define mercy is, mercy, is grace in action. It's, it's the outpouring. It's the symptom. It's the fruit that, that grace bears. If grace says you're forgiven, then mercy is how you treat people who you've had to forgive. Mercy is not for people who haven't wronged us. Mercy is not for people who don't owe us some kind of debt. That's just being nice or normal. Mercy is a response to someone in our lives having done something that probably deserves some form of retribution or consequence at least, and us choosing instead to to overlook that because we have love for that person, because we want to forgive them. So I can give you an example from my own life. Uh, Last night at about 9 p.m., I was uh, moving laundry from the washer to the dryer. Saturday is kind of chore day at the Coleman house, and so Uh, I was up late working on some stuff, and I went in to move the laundry. Andy asked me if I would do that. And when I opened the dryer, 
all inside the dryer, I saw this brown, sticky, oily substance all inside the dryer, not something that my dryer typically looks like. And it wasn't the worst brown thing that can appear in the dryer. It wasn't that one. It was chocolate. And so I pulled all the clothes out. I didn't see any chocolate on any of the stuff, but there's just, I mean, it had, it had baked in there. It was, it was hardened. And so I went in the bedroom and I said to Andy, I think that somebody in our family, probably the one member of our family that does not pay rent in this house, that doesn't contribute, has left a Hershey's kiss in her pocket, I think. And so I said to Andy, I should probably wake her up. She'd been asleep for a couple of hours at that point. I was like, I should probably wake her up and make her clean out the dryer, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, she got the, that's how, natural consequences, right? That's how you learn your lesson, and you check your pockets from now on, is what I thought. Well, Andy said to me, you shouldn't do that, because that's what the stepmother in Cinderella did to Cinderella for the whole movie. (laughs) So that's Andy's hermeneutic, that's the way she views the world, is maybe through the lens of Disney movies. But I said to her, well, at least God has been gracious to me to give me an opening illustration for tomorrow morning's sermon. And she said, no, don't tell this story tomorrow, because people will think that you are the stepmother from Cinderella. And I said, look, if Cinderella threw a razor the night before, she gets to clean the whole house, okay? That's the way it works, bottom line. So no, I don't think I am. If my daughter wants to leave candy in her pocket, then she can clean the dryer. But I did it myself, because I'm a Christian. I I just scraped it out, no big deal, anyway. (laughs) So mercy, right? Mercy is a moment where I could have absolutely said to another person in my life, you owe me this now. Because of an action you took, or maybe even something that you didn't do, there's, there's something that I can demand from you in response. And when we talk to God, we deal with God, we have to understand that at its most basic form, our relationship to him is a relationship of mercy. Anytime we approach him, we are reminding him of the massive debt that we owe. And I don't just mean because he died for our sins. That's a debt we'll never repay. We put ourselves in debt that he had to pay by being sinful people. That's the initial, that's the baseline foundational debt that we find ourselves in. And God, being way better than we are, offers us even more mercy than we can offer each other. And so we're going to dig into the Bible today. I asked you to go to Matthew 25, and we're going to take a look at Jesus' prescription for what mercy looks like. We'll start reading in verse 31. So this is about halfway through this chapter, and we'll read through verse 40. Jesus is preaching. He's been preaching. If your Bible has red letters like mine does, most of these two pages and the two before it and the two after it are just red which is communicating that Jesus is just kind of going in on his audience right now. He's just preaching and preaching and preaching. So he says this in verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels come with him, then he, the Son of Man, will sit on his glorious throne. We believe this too, right? That at the end of all things, Jesus comes back from heaven. He makes everything right. He corrects all deaths everywhere and reconciles the world to himself. And Jesus says he's going to take this action. Before him will be gathered all the nations, everybody of all time. It's a lot of people. And the Son of Man will separate people one from another in the same way that a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats will be on his left. And then the king will say to those who are on his right, these are the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick And you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to me. This is the way that Jesus, at the end of all things, is going to speak to a certain group of people. It sounds like about half of the people who are on the earth. Then the righteous will answer him. Jesus is still telling the story about himself in the future. So he's saying the righteous will answer Jesus. They'll say back to him, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see that you were a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer them and say, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So my first idea for you today, if we're going to interact with mercy, is this, that mercy is more than a merit badge. Mercy is more than a merit badge. When you and I think about helping the poor or giving food to the hungry, I think that we, we really have almost no real barriers to that in our mind. Right? None of us is going to say, that's silly, it's a waste of time, we should never do that ever at all. Uh, that's just part of the DNA of this church. That predates me to some degree, that we've already embraced the concept that there are problems out there in our community, and we would like to, if it's up to us, be a part of solving those problems, not just because we think people are awesome, but because we believe that Jesus wants us to do that, that that's his intention for our life. What I think, though, is that <laughs> instead of that actually turning into action in some ways, what we've done, the, the operative form of that has been that we've just sort of returned to kind of a net zero, what I mean is we're not resistant to that happening, but we have no real plan to make it happen. And, and maybe that's a symptom of us being too busy. Maybe our calendars are too full. Maybe it means that 100% of the money that we make is already in our minds or on paper attributed to other things, and so we don't feel that we have the margin. And because we don't have the margin and because human beings tend to not inconvenience themselves if they can help it, we treat mercy like it's a merit badge. What I mean when I say merit badge is where I grew up, at least, uh, Boy Scouts were a big deal. And if you were going to become an Eagle Scout, there were lots of different things that you needed to do. And along the way, you would take part in things that didn't really seem that important to you, probably weren't a part of your hobby or anything that you cared about, but you did it so you could put a badge on your, a badge on your vest. Uh, if you grew up in a conservative church, you might have been a part of either Girls in Action or Royal Ambassadors, which use a similar kind of Scouts badge merit system. And I think as grown-up adults sometimes, maybe we've translated the philosophy of that in a way that's not healthy. Maybe we've told ourselves that mercy is important for the church to be a part of, but we don't consider it to be our own personal call. Or maybe even in your own life, you've, you've disqualified yourself because you don't think you have the personality, or you don't feel that God's necessarily given you the spiritual gifts. What Jesus just said is a really helpful metric to decide who gets into heaven and who doesn't is whether or not you have lived a life of mercy. It seems to be very important to him. It's so important that he's expecting people to show mercy to each other when those who are receiving the mercy don't look anything like Jesus. It's, it's, part, it's a very important part of what we just read, that those who are considered sheep, those who are going to, to live with God for eternity, they did not recognize Jesus in the people that they were serving. So we're not just talking about Christians serving Christians here, okay? Though that's important and the Bible does speak to that. What we're talking about is Christians choosing to serve people who don't look like, sound like, smell like, feel like, talk like Jesus. The least of these is what Jesus said. Who is the least of these in Anchorage, Alaska? Probably people who don't have a house would be a good starting point. People who don't know their family, people whose lives are racked by addiction or disability or some response to trauma in their life. Probably people who have lived in generations of that, where you and I have ladders we can climb and we have aunts and uncles and moms and dads and grandparents we can call to lean on and support us who are going to check on us if they don't hear from us once in a while. The least of these are people who live in a vacuum. I've said this to you before, but one of the, the foundations that many of us don't realize that we have in our life is we have other people around us who care. And the reason I call that a foundation is if you're going to make any kind of movement in your life, if you're going to change anything about how you do things or where you live or your career, anything like that, you have to have something solid to push against. It's the same principle physically, right? If I'm going to jump up, it's really hard to jump out of water because I don't have anything to push against in the water. I need solid ground under my feet. Relationally, economically, physically, the other people around you who love you and care for you, your community, whether that's family or friends, 
they function as that foundation for you. And if you don't have that foundation, it doesn't matter how badly you would like to be different, you have nothing to push against. And so what Jesus is describing is people who have no formal or legal or familial affiliation with the least of these choosing to be that foundation. Giving somebody else the opportunity to be different by you letting them lean on your life is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus said in verse 40 that serving him is a way that he will know who actually loves him. And by serving him in this instance, what I mean is choosing to serve other people. We don't have time to read it, but the rest of this chapter is Jesus saying that the inverse is also true. That choosing not to live a life of mercy, choosing to walk away from a person who we would consider to be the least of these without any care, without noticing them, without helping at all, well, that's a helpful metric for Jesus to realize who deserves eternal punishment. His words, not mine. Now, I don't think what Jesus is trying to do is scare you and I. I don't think he wants to create some kind of new moral obligation in our lives where we are afraid that if we don't do enough, a lightning bolt is coming for us. What I think Jesus understands about the hearts and minds of people is the more religious we become, the easier it is, because we like laws, the easier it is for us to use laws and circumstances to negotiate our way out of a loving lifestyle. It's always true. People who turn the word of God or their relationship with Jesus into just a system of yeses and nos and boxes to check, they become very good at maneuvering and, and trying to outmaneuver a gracious lifestyle in the name of keeping themselves clean or keeping someone or themselves safe. This is why Jesus has such an issue with the Pharisees. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, there's a moment where Jesus and his disciples are walking and the Pharisees aggressively attack them and say, you're not following the Sabbath law. And Jesus says, do you not know in the Old Testament God the Father says over and over again that I desire mercy, not a sacrifice. What he's saying is, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about your heart. I'm concerned with where the part of you that makes decisions is, and if it's aligned with grace and mercy, not necessarily if your hands and feet are always doing the right thing. So mercy has to be more than a merit badge for us. It isn't optional. It's not reserved for certain members of the body. So what do we do? If you look back at verses 35 and 36 of what we just read, I hope you're still there. I want to point out just five broad, easy-to-remember, I think, categories of what Jesus expects from his disciples when it comes to participating in mercy. First, he expects that we provide food for those who are hungry. Just very literally, on its nose, that's what we need to be doing, is, is finding a way to help people who have no food to survive. It's a basic need. Number two, Jesus expects us to provide water for the thirsty. And I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, this is one that sometimes I roll my eyes at and I need to check my own heart and repent because churches show up at events and they hand out water bottles and I go, who cares? Well, apparently Jesus does. So I need to sit down and let him be in charge and not me. So I'm just confessing that to you. I struggle with some of these too. They can seem too simple to me, but God knows what he's doing. He doesn't need me to change his plans. Number three, hospitality for the stranger. That's a hard one. This might be the hardest one. For us because it requires us to treat a person we have no relationship with as if we have an intimate relationship with them. Think about the kinds of people that you typically invite into your home. Are you good at? Are you proficient at inviting people that you don't know at all into your home? It's scary. It's a little bit dangerous. Even if it's not physically dangerous, it's maybe dangerous for your emotional state or dangerous for your standing in the community or dangerous for the things that you own in your house and whether or not they're all going to still be there when this person leaves. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. These are the things that run through our minds. It seems important to Jesus. Number four, dignity for the shamed. Your Bible says clothing for the naked, and I believe that clothing for the naked is important, but I want to dig a layer deeper than that and understand that what Jesus is talking to us about is giving a person their dignity back. 
being naked is not just a threat to your physical health, it's incredibly embarrassing. It's the reason that you're all wearing clothes right now. You made that choice today. Probably no one had to talk you into that, hopefully. <laughs> so what about people who can't do that? What about people who can't cover their shame with a jacket or pants? What if their shame is larger than that? What if their shame is a symptom of a broken relationship they were a part of for 20 years before they walked away? Are you willing to help them find dignity again? Do you care? Can you be merciful? Because remember what mercy is. Mercy is saying you deserve something negative because of the decisions that you've made, and instead I'm going to show you love. Well, what does love look like when a person lives a life of shame? It probably looks like aligning yourself with them and letting your own reputation be on the line to some degree, but what do you have to lose? Because you belong to Jesus, right? It's easy to say, hard to do. Number five, care for the needy. Visiting the sick, visiting those who are imprisoned, I can tell you that nobody feels like more of a stranger Nobody feels more needy than when they're sick or when they're stuck. And prison is being stuck for good. Nothing dehumanizes you more than, I mean, you've lived this for a year, than having to take normal human contact and remove it from your life, especially if that's permanent for you because if you're immunocompromised or you have some kind of highly contagious disease. Jesus seems to think that Christians have a vested interest in reaching out to people whom the world does not care about anymore. That's the way that I read this. When he says the least of these, I think people who are imprisoned because of their own mistakes, the definition of someone who needs mercy, and those who are chronically ill or sick in a way where they can't be around other people, they need our attention. They need Jesus' attention. They need to be loved. They need to know that there is a God who loves them despite their circumstances. So this is your homework. This is our homework collectively. We're talking about reforging right now, changing the vision of the church and updating our actions to match. That's the hard part. These five things are things that we need to be considering as a church. We need to be praying about these things. I'm, I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, even if you need to pull your phone out and take a picture of this or something, would you spend some time asking God what we should do about these things? Because our resources are limited, and they always will be. doesn't matter how big the church gets, there comes a point where there's no more money in the bank. And so we need to be wise about how we do that. We need to be wise about where the margin is in our lives, where the margin is in our church to interact with people. We also want to be helpful in a way that sticks, in a way that excuse me, lasts. We don't want to ignore that Jesus simply said to go and serve the needy, but we would also like to help the needy maybe handle some of those needs if we can. Find a way up and out of that. I think that transformative change is possible. So that's what I'm asking for you to do. And then I want to also mention something that I talked about about five weeks ago. I told you when we preached the initial opening sermon to this series that we were putting together, I say we, I mean the elders, we're putting together what we're calling a vision implementation team. And we need your help, because I, I can't do all this on my own. Maybe I could try. I'd probably burn myself out, and then none of you guys would care, because it wouldn't be your ideas in action. It would just be mine. But I don't want this to just be me. And I don't really think you want that either. And so if, as we've preached this series, there's been a specific sermon that has stuck out to you, that's made you feel like it's time to take action, or if the general idea has got you excited or worked up, or even going back to last October, if there's a moment where you felt like, I need to be a part of this. I want my voice to be a part of shaping and leading and directing where some of these efforts go. Well, you have a chance to be a part of that. We are a congregationally, elder -led, congregationally ruled elder-led church, and our elders are willing to vest authority into a group of members who are part of that ruling congregation to help steer this thing. It's better than any one of us doing it by ourselves. And so maybe if you haven't already, a good prayer to add to your prayer list for the week would be to God. God, should I speak up? Should I? Just take the next seven days, take the next 14 days. You've got a couple more weeks until we're going to solidify who's on this team. And all you have to do is just send an email to that email address, the one behind me. And let me know you're interested. That's it. It's not a commitment right out of the gate. 
It's just a chance for us to talk to you, to help you parse that out. What is God telling you and why? And maybe we can move forward together as a team. So that's more big picture. I want to zoom in today now on kind of the second major idea that we have. And that is that mercy, mercy is repentance and relief. The second big concept, this is where we'll land the plane today. Mercy, according to the Bible, in the terms that we're using today, it's repentance and relief together. So in Ephesians chapter 2, this is a good place to draw a definition for mercy from God's perspective out of the Bible. And the Bible says this, God being rich in mercy, so God has a lot of mercy, here's the actions that he takes as a result. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You've heard this before. And, and he raised us up with him. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So mercy means that life is made unintentionally fair. If I haven't said that clearly to you yet, that's what we mean. It's a symptom of having encountered grace, like we talked about last week. The story that we share with the world, the gospel that we communicate, is that we have encountered grace ourselves. Well, one of the main symptoms of that is that we have been shown mercy. We may not be able to write down the definition of mercy on paper, but we are living the definition of mercy, so it ought to be something that we can describe. Even if it's awkward, even if we stumble through it, that sense of being forgiven, that sense of being cared for, even though we don't deserve that, that is what we are trying to communicate to other people who do not know Jesus yet. And this is why showing and sharing are almost always partners. They ought to be. Because we show mercy in order to put our money where our mouth is with the gospel that we share. And we share the gospel because we don't just want to take care of people's short-term needs. We want to lead them to the well where the Jesus who says that he is living water and living bread that can satisfy and, and feed us forever will take care of us. It's a both-and thing. Jesus is not just focused on relieving suffering in the world. And he also isn't immune to or ignoring suffering in the world in the name of some higher ideal. It's gospel and mercy. They go together, and that's why repentance and relief have to be partners if this is going to be functional. So maybe you've seen this before. When it comes to mercy, every church lands somewhere on a span, or you can think of kind of a spectrum. And at one extreme is what we'll call humanism, and at the other extreme is what I call revivalism. Humanism is a broadly accepted term. Revivalism I kind of made up because I couldn't think of a better word, so I'm going to help you understand what those mean. But Humanism, we'll start there on that extreme. Humanism is the idea that humanity is the highest and most valuable category of being in existence. It means that there's no God, no higher power, no moral standard, nothing more than all of us together making the most of our race and continuing to evolve forward. Our consciousness makes us extreme is the idea. And, and humanists are typically very compassionate people. They're really concerned with whether or not things like government or policy or nonprofit organizations or churches are taking care of the needs around them. And so one of the sneaky parts of figuring this out is I think it's easy for people who are humanistic to sneak into churches. And maybe not even to sneak, maybe to walk in really proud because they feel like they're ready to take the mission seriously. The challenge is, is what their eyes are on. And this is church why it is so important that we always keep Jesus at the center because many churches have taken showing mercy and that has become their binding core principle of their congregation. And do they help alleviate suffering? Yeah, probably better than we do in some ways. But ultimately, all they can lead a person to is trying to show more mercy to other people. There is no higher being, there is no fulfillment, there's no sense of ultimate repentance and forgiveness that, that lords over those things in a way that's very healthy and helpful. 
And we believe that it would be cruel, that it would be unkind to not lead people all the way to Jesus when he's the only one who can answer and meet all of our heart's desires, the deepest parts of ourself. A warm meal, a cup of water, a jacket, a place to stay, these are important things in the meantime, but none of them get us into the eternal presence of God forever. Only Jesus can do that. So we have to keep Jesus at the center. On the other end of this spectrum is the idea of revivalism, or you might think of it, if you're familiar with different world philosophies, asceticism, kind of removing yourself from the physical, distancing, almost Gnosticism, distancing yourself from what's tangible, from your body, from your aches and your pains and the things that are hurting you. Um, I think that revivalism is a very American version of this. I think it has its roots in the two great awakenings that happened a few hundred years ago. And I think that it continues to exist in some of the more puritanical conservative denominations in, in the United States, people who just have a tendency to distance themselves from the real world. Oftentimes, revivalism is a symptom of the church not viewing itself as a base camp out of which we send missionaries to go and do and change, but the church instead viewing itself as a fortress against darkness. You've heard me talk about this a lot of times. I think it's really one of, one of two ways that a church goes when it reaches maturity. All churches start missional. No church is ever planted because it wants to be a bastion against darkness, but over time we transform and we, we surrender to that idea. And so what revivalism does is it has its eyes so focused on not Jesus, but heaven, okay? There's a difference. It's so focused on heaven that its solution to hunger and thirst and pain and disease is if you just wait long enough, you'll die, and then everything will be better in eternity, which doesn't do anybody any good really at all. It doesn't even do that person any good because it requires them to overlook some of the clearest, most obvious, most direct commands of Jesus, the Jesus that's supposed to be getting them to heaven he doesn't just become active and valuable and important once we get there. We're supposed to embrace a lifestyle that he has directed now. So we can't settle for either one. And I understand that I'm, I'm probably kind of characterizing these a little bit to some degree. But I think that each of us, each of you, myself included, we err toward one end of the spectrum. We find one end more comfortable than the other. And it probably has a little bit to do with our personality. Are we typically more compassionate people or are we more get-it-done people? Because get-it-done people tend to be a little more revivalist, because it's easier, and it's natural, and it's just the way that we think. But we need Jesus to challenge that revivalism and bring us back to a more neutral position. And the same is true for the humanist. We need Jesus to challenge our understanding that people are the most important thing. God says people are the most important part of creation, but they're not the most important thing. There's still a creator, an author of life, above that life itself, who is worthy of our worship and our praise. And if our eyes are not on him, we're going to drift to one end or the other. Humanism and revivalism, if I haven't made it obvious already, are both wrong. They're not helpful, they're not good, they are not the right metrics for a church to have when it comes to how it views its role in the community. Humanism is wrong because it believes the greatest good we can do is care for each other, and if Jesus can get more people to take care of each other, then great, then sign me up for Jesus, right? But my end goal is just to get to people. Revivalism is wrong because it tries to dump all of its time and resources into a quote-unquote gospel that's devoid of one of the primary evidences of transformation, of mercy. It's trying to speak in a way, to talk in a way that it refuses to back up with a walk. And revivalism doesn't pass the litmus test of this culture, any culture, at any point in history, because it's all talk and no walk. So the only way that we can find repentance and relief marrying each other is if we look to Jesus as our example. The Jesus of the Bible is the only place where the heaven of the revivalist meets the earth of the humanist. Do you understand what I'm saying? By being fully human, by being fully divine, Jesus is the only one who can walk that tightrope and who can balance those two things and give us a third and better way than devolving into revivalism or humanism. 
In the middle is Jesus-centered mercy. And that's what I mean when I say that mercy is repentance and relief. Christ-centered mercy. It doesn't take away our need to be engaged and involved in our community, but it protects our hearts from the idolatry of worshiping the people that we serve. Because service and worship go hand in hand. Maybe you don't know that about yourself. That's probably why you have trouble considering ever changing your career, because you've been serving your job so long that you've started to worship it. That's normal. Nobody's telling you that. It's my job to say that to you. When we spend our time and our resources and our effort serving something, building something, giving to something, it is natural that our hearts would want to worship that thing. So we have to be very careful. We have to have something better that draws our worship like a magnet to keep us safe from giving ourselves away to the people that we serve. When I say giving ourselves away, I mean our souls. I mean the part of us that attributes worship. I don't mean our lives. We're supposed to live freely and give our lives away. So Jesus protects us from this. When we talk about repentance, we mean that we have repented first. Otherwise, there's no relationship with Jesus. And then, having repented of our sin, having repented of our inborn desire to elevate humanity above God and our selfishness that insulates us against real needs, the two things that draw us to either end of the spectrum, we become able to show mercy in a way that is safe from revivalism and humanism both. We learn from Jesus how to see the physical and the spiritual need instead of just picking one and ignoring the other which is our temptation. And then that repentance becomes part of our message. We become able to give freely and graciously without ever getting anything back. And instead of needing the people that we're serving to always say thank you and be grateful and show evidence and steps of change, we can just give because we've been given much. We can put the responsibility of the conviction and the transformation in God's hands where it belongs, and we can be faithful followers of him, allowing him to lead us. So with Jesus as our example... I want you to hear from Jesus' brother James today. This is from James chapter 2, the letter that he wrote to the church. James is a man, if you don't know his biography, who at one point stood outside of a house that Jesus was teaching in and shouted at people, don't go in there, that man is a lunatic. So James understands transformation a little bit, okay? He and his mother and his other brothers tried to get Jesus to come back home and be quiet. That's what they wanted. And Jesus said, who is my mother and brothers? It's these people who've come to listen to me, which is about the worst burn anybody's ever given their brother in history. But eventually James is converted. He becomes an apostle. He becomes part of planting churches, having been a person who denied fully the deity and even the sanity of Jesus. And here's what he says in chapter 2 of his letter. He says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy. And that's just the last line in a previous thought that he's been working on for about 12 verses, but it's important that you hear him say that. If you are expecting to arrive at the same point that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 and not receive judgment, then it will be imperative that you have shown mercy in your life. He goes on to say this, mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by, it, excuse me, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Oh, but James is smart. Here comes the counter-argument. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by the works that I do. In other words, it's silly to think that you can only have one. They work so closely together that they interact constantly. He says, you believe that God is one, and you do well. But God is, has both things, faith and works. Even the demons believe, and they shudder at this. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, are you going to make God prove to you that what I'm saying is true? 
It's the same thing Jesus is asking in Matthew 25. Do you really want to get to that day and risk it? You want to roll the dice on your eternity and hope that maybe God will overlook this requirement in your life just once, just give you an out? James is saying that's foolishness. Don't live your life that way. This is one of the most highly debated passages in the Bible, and I think we may have missed the point for that reason. When we talk about faith without works, when we talk about works being necessary as part of faith, what those works are is incredibly important. And what James is saying is those are works of mercy. They're not just Bible study. They're not just opportunities to teach. They're not necessarily you leading a life group or having a life group in your home or working with kids. These are good and important things. But the litmus test for the faith that you have in Jesus to be real is whether that faith bears fruit that looks like Jesus, is what James is saying. The works that are necessary are works of mercy. They're works of kindness. They're acts of forgiveness against people who have not said that they are sorry yet. Because Jesus died for you before you were born. And you didn't say you were sorry before you were born. Okay? So he made the first move, and that's the example that we have in our lives as well. And these categories of mercy, they're the same ones that Jesus is talking about. The same ones James heard Jesus talk about when Jesus was preaching in Matthew 25. So as a church, we have to take mercy seriously. It's not optional. To say that we are merciful yet to never act on that is, is more than us just being too busy. Okay? It's bigger than our calendars being too full or us being at the wrong stage of life to be participating in mercy. What we have to ask ourselves is who are we going to be? Not necessarily what are we going to do for a little while to try to help for now, but is this going to become an identity level thing for us or not? Because if it's not, we should own that, don't you think? Shouldn't we just be honest with the community and quit talking like we're really merciful and then fail to do it? Shouldn't we just tell people we don't care that much about you? Wouldn't that be better? To just be done, and we can just insulate ourselves, and we can have this club that we love, and we can sing about a Jesus who did a lot for us, but can't seem to motivate us to do anything for anybody else. I think that would be better. I think that would be more honest. But we, we don't want to be that way, right? Obviously, I'm being facetious to you. What we want to do is drag our will, drag our actions into the place that our desire is. And we want to become people who do mercy and don't just think about it who are ourselves participating, not just hoping that the church will use the money that we give to go do something important for somebody somewhere. So would you, would you go from maybe being a person who says, go in peace and be warm and filled, to quote James, to being somebody who's going to follow Jesus into the mud of other people's lives, to give relief and to show repentance, biblical mercy. That's my hope for us. And that's the way that we're going to be pushing hard for you to go as well. Because if it's all about Jesus, then we show mercy to our neighbors. Let me pray for you. Father God, we, we love you. We love you. And we're not great at this. But we're trying, and we're listening, and we want to be shaped. We want to be malleable, God. And so I think that's probably the first level of what I'm going to ask you for today is just, would you soften us? Would you make us workable? Would you make us moldable in a way that we maybe have become rigid? Would you show us, God, convict us of our schedules, convict us of our commitments and our time and our lack of margin for anybody who inconveniences us or draws us out of the plan that we had for the day. Make us patient. Let us eliminate hurry where we can. Let us slow our pace, our internal clock, this metronome that drives us all day. Would you just let us calm a bit? Would you give us freedom to do that, to trust that you'll take care of the things that maybe we feel that we're going to neglect? And then I pray, God, for the people in our community who need your gospel. I pray that you would cause that gospel to become clear to them, 
and that you would use their broken circumstances just like you used ours to lead them to repentance. And then while you're working, God, would you bring us along? That's the order of operations here. Would you allow us to participate? Would you have sort of bring your children to work day every day in our community where we get to see what you're already doing, what you're already working on? We don't want this to be about us, God. We, we ultimately don't even want it to be about the people that we serve. We want it to be about you and about Jesus. So give us the ability to understand the nuance of that. We pray, God, that our service would be full of integrity and that we would be a church that does make an impact in this city because we believe that your gospel is worth that and even more than that. So we love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.